Today we begin a new series. So if you have your Bible, um, you heard our passage for the day in the Gospel of John. If you'll open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, we're beginning a series called Conversations with Jesus. Knowing and making Jesus known from the Gospel of John. If you were to go to the end of the Gospel of John, you would see uh, that it says in John chapter uh, 20, verse 30 through 31, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in Jesus' name. Uh, <clears throat> as we read through uh, the Gospels, we see that there are are many things that Jesus done. The very last verse of the Gospel of John in John 21-25 says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books to be written. Jesus did many things and Jesus said many things. And the point of the Gospels is that they reveal to us the significance and they show us what Jesus did on our behalf in His perfect life and His sacrificial death and His victorious resurrection. But it's in the conversations that Jesus has with different people in the Gospels that we learn the meaning and the significance of what Jesus did. That we learn the meaning and the significance of His perfect life. The meaning and significance of His death on the cross and of His resurrection from the dead and His return and His coming again. Uh, it's in these conversations that we catch a, a glimpse of the heart of Jesus for people. Uh, we we see the the significance of what he did, but we we also see um, <clears throat> uh, the the full picture of Jesus. And in those conversations, not only do we learn about Jesus, but we also learn something about how to make Jesus known. How so often in his conversations, he's inviting people to follow him. How he's meeting people in their brokenness and their need, and and showing them who he is and calling them to himself. And so over the, the course of the remainder of this summer, we're going to be looking at these different conversations that Jesus has with various people in the Gospel of John, learning about who Jesus is as well as learning about how to make Jesus known. But today, to introduce this series, we're going to come to the very end of Jesus' public ministry. In John chapter 1 uh, through 12, really in 1 through 11, we see all these signs that Jesus did in the Gospel of John that are really demonstrating who He is and, uh, and why He came. And the culmination of those signs was when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And it was an amazing thing. And many people came to believe, but there also was kind of the pinnacle of the opposition against Jesus by the religious leaders uh, in, the, in, in that day. In chapter 12, we begin um, <clears throat> this kind of in-between between Jesus' closing of His public ministry and the, the final week of his life in, in chapters 13 through 21 of Jesus heading to the cross. And most of his conversations in John 13 through 21 are focused upon uh, Jesus talking with his disciples and Jesus interacting with uh, Pilate and, uh, and the other figures in the, in the passion narrative. And so this closes Jesus's public ministry. In many ways, it, it's the, one of the last conversations that we see Jesus having with with people in the crowds coming to Him. Uh, and it's a, a passage that I think uh, helps us to understand the purpose of the Gospel of John, but also the purpose that Jesus had as He had conversations with various people. Um, <clears throat> I, I think Jesus would have been delightful to talk to, um, 
But I, I get the sense that Jesus didn't have a lot of, I don't know how you are in a social setting, if you're a small talk kind of person, um, <clears throat> uh, or if you're, you, you want to go in deep and meaningful right away. Uh, I, I see the value in both, you know, like you, you kind of can read the room, you know how to chum it up perhaps to kind of establish a little bit of grounds and, and get to know some people, but then uh, the opportunity uh, arises to kind of go deep and meaningful conversation. Some of you are like, I have no time or energy uh, for small talk. I like, you know, tell me something meaningful uh, or don't tell me anything at all. Others of us were scared of when the conversation turns. We're like, hey, let's keep it to the weather, you know, baseball, football, whatever it is. Let's just keep it, um, you know, at this level and not go any deeper. I, I feel like Jesus, though I'm sure he would have been great at small talk. Jesus loves to get to the point. He loves to have meaningful conversation with people. Uh, and in fact, I, I think it's somewhat ironic in our conversation today uh, as we look at this conversation with Jesus. Jesus doesn't actually address the main questions that people are asking him, but he uses the rising of those questions to address other things. Now, that's a classic parenting technique, uh, as well as, you know, uh, an evading sometimes in our side. We try to evade the question. Jesus isn't evading it, but he's using the occasion to teach about something significant. Um, and so what, what we're going to see in John 12, 20 through 50 is, is a group of people who are seeking Jesus. A group of Greeks, it tells us in verse 20, that come seeking Jesus. And we're going to dive into the significance of that. But, but I, what I want us to see today is that everyone who seeks Jesus must know why Jesus came and what it means to follow Him. And we must know why Jesus came and what it means to follow Him. And in short, the way that Jesus answers why He came and what it means to follow Him is He came to die on the cross so that He might save every sinner who believes in Him. Jesus came to die on the cross so that He might save every sinner who believes in Him. He tells us that this is His purpose for coming into the world in this passage. And in this passage, there's, there's really three main things that we're going to look at. The cost, the cross, and the challenge. The cost, the cross, and the challenge. First, the cost of following Jesus. Look at verses 20 through 26. We, we heard it read, um, but the scene is set when some Greeks come seeking to see Jesus. Uh, perhaps one of the um, most quoted uh, verses in the Bible that's put on pulpits uh, uh, in churches. Uh, Sir, it says in verse 21, we wish to see Jesus. Uh, what better question is there? We want to see Jesus. Um, it's on those pulpits as a reminder that every time we open God's Word, uh, the one job that I have uh, is that you might see Jesus as He's presented in the pages of God's Word. Uh, and that's what they're asking. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. <clears throat> and they go to Philip, who's uh, one of the disciples who has a Greek name. Uh, and so uh, it, it perhaps seems maybe they come to Philip, maybe thinking he'll be sympathetic to them. Mostly in Jesus' ministry, uh, we see him interacting with Jewish people. Uh, and yet we know that the gospel has come first to the Jews so that it might go to all nations. And here we see that coming to fruition. The gospel going to the nations, even in the life and ministry of Jesus, comes about right here in John 12 as the Greeks come seeking Jesus. We're not told exactly why they're seeking Jesus. It doesn't say specifically, but if we look at the context in the prior passage, we have an idea of why. Before Jesus gets to this final week of His ministry, 
um, of his crucifixion and his resurrection, there's these increasingly antagonistic interactions that Jesus has with the scribes and the, and the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders of the day. He was constantly interacting with them. They were trying to catch Jesus in his words. And, and it even tells us in, uh, in John eleven forty five through 54, if you look at uh, verse 54, it says that um, as they uh, went out, or in, in verses 45 going down to uh, 57, that they were looking for a way to kill Jesus, to arrest Him and kill Him. It says in verse 45, many of the Jews who had come with Mary and had seen what He had done in raising Lazarus from the dead, they believed in Him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the, the rising of, uh, raising Lazarus from the dead uh, was kind of a shockwave in Jerusalem there as Jesus approached Pentecost, or excuse me, as He approached the Passover in the final week of his life there are many who were seeing what had happened and they were believing maybe this is the messiah maybe he's the promised one and and then others were thinking as you read through that passage there in verses 45 through 54 the the pharisees and the religious leaders were thinking oh great this is going to cause a an uproar and the romans are going to come in and crush us again their desire in part is to protect uh, jerusalem and israel uh, from being uh, further uh, pressed in upon by the Romans, and, and they see Jesus as a, a distraction and a danger to Israel, not understanding that He's actually come for the very purpose of saving Israel, of fulfilling the promises of God to be the Messiah. And it says in John chapter 12, verses 17 through 19, after Jesus makes the triumphal entry, the crowd who had been with him when they when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued. He continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd wanted to meet with him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. Everyone had heard about it. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. What truer words could there be? The, the nations, these Greeks were coming to seek Jesus. It was all within the very plan and heart of God to save a people for Himself so that they would be a blessing to all nations. That's what God said to Abraham. And Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise through Abraham. And so what we find is these Greeks coming to seek Jesus. We wish to see Jesus, they say. And uh, one of the reasons I, I love this, this passage is just the reminder to us. I know the time is different now, some 2,000 years later, but I think this proves true across time. And here's the truth. People are curious about Jesus. In, in, in almost every uh, season and stage of ministry and life that I've been a part of, in my own life as a testimony, as well as my interactions with others, people are curious about Jesus. And I think it's a good reminder for us uh, to, uh, to, to not underestimate people's desire to talk about Jesus. Some of you went out with us on Wednesday and we did some spiritual interest surveys on campus. Um, <clears throat> I like to say that spiritual interest surveys do uh, one of two things. One, they plant the seed of the gospel in every conversation you have. But two, they show you that if you get rejected repeatedly, that you can go on living. Um, you, can, <laughs> you can get continually rejected and life will go on. Um, and <clears throat> in fact, the only way that I got somebody to stop and talk to me is I asked a group of people if they were interested in getting $100. And they said, yes, they were. And I said, I, I regret to inform you that I don't have $100 to give you. But I only said that because I wanted your attention. I was hoping that you would take the spiritual interest survey. You don't have to, but it would mean a lot to me if you did. 
and they, they did. Um, and so we, we had a conversation that usually doesn't work, but it worked uh, that day. But one of the questions, the main question that we get, uh, that we ask that's intended to, to talk about the gospel is, what's your view of Jesus? It's a five-question survey, but at the, the heart of it is to talk to people about Jesus. And every time I've asked people their view of Jesus, they've had something to say. Everybody's had something to say. Everybody has an opinion about Jesus. Everybody's entitled to a wrong opinion as well, right? Everybody has some type of curiosity. And so we shouldn't underestimate the opportunities we have in our daily life to talk to people about Jesus. People are seeking. I truly believe that the world is waiting to hear about Jesus. And when we think about the the marching orders that Jesus gave His church, that He gave us, at at the core of those orders are that we would be people who would regularly talk to other people about Jesus. And and I never get tired of reminding believers and reminding us here today, you and I are here today worshiping Jesus because somebody somewhere told you about Jesus. God has no grandchildren. He only has children who come to Him through faith in Christ and people don't come to faith in Christ without someone telling them about Jesus. And we're reminded here that people are seeking, people are curious, looking to find Jesus and talk to Him. And so that's exactly uh, what, what happens here. As we uh, get to this passage, uh, we're, we're going to see that Jesus' response in a way feels like a non-response. They ask to see Jesus and Philip. He goes and He takes Andrew. And Andrew and Philip, they go and they tell Jesus. There are these Greeks and they want to see you. And look at what Jesus says. He answered them. He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Like, wait a second. They just wanted to see you. (laughs) Now the hour has come uh, for the Son of Man to be glorified. See, Jesus is is now, I think, taking this occasion as, as literally the world, the nations, and these Greeks, represented by these Greeks as they come to Him. He says, now is the moment when the nations will come and seek because of what I'm about to do. The hour has arrived. After this point in the Gospel of John, everything barrels to the cross. Everything is rushing to the crucifixion. Everything's headed to Jesus going to the cross and His resurrection from the dead. And at this moment, Jesus says something has changed. If you look throughout the Gospel of John, there's this reference to the hour repeatedly. Notice how it says there in verse 23 that the hour has come. If you go back and you look at the three previous references to the hour in John chapter 2, verse 4, and John 7, verse 30, John 8, verse 20, it's always the hour has not yet come. When Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding, He says, my hour has not yet come. It's, it's still in the future. But now, He says, the hour has arrived. And from here on out, the hour is at hand and it is imminent. And so what is the the hour that Jesus is talking about? Three o'clock? Seven o'clock? Right? No, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a specific uh, hour. It, it's a, uh, it's the, uh, the moment, if you will, in God's plan of redemption in which Jesus will be glorified through His death, His resurrection, and His exaltation. The, the whole... Um, the whole work that He is about to do in His death and resurrection as well as His exaltation 
is referencing the hour of Jesus's glorification. And it's somewhat of a strange thought that Jesus tells us his glory is revealed in his death. It's the first place in which we see this. He says it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. How will he be glorified? By being beaten and hung up on a cross. And in God's plan of redemption, Jesus taking our place and bearing the judgment for our sin is the revealing of the glory of God. And in the fullness of that, it's also referencing His resurrection and His exaltation. So we see the hour has come. Jesus has said, now is the time in which I'm going to fulfill why I have come. That I've come for the work of redemption through the cross. It's through the the work of the cross that God brings about the fruit of eternal life. There is no fruit of eternal life and a transformed life apart from the work of cross, the work of the cross. He says, truly, truly, every time you see that in the Gospels, it's as if Jesus is saying, listen up. Hear what I'm about to say, that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's in the laying down of his life that he is going to bear the fruit of eternal life for all who would trust in him. Jesus understood his life to be primarily about this one thing. Jesus came to die. He came to die and through his dying, he brings about new life. Up to this point in verses 23 through 24, Jesus has answered the question of those who are seeking him. The the request to see him by telling them the purpose for which he came which is to die, to bring about life, eternal life. But I said that this is about the cost of following Christ. But here's the thing. We can't understand the cost of following Christ without understanding who Christ is and why He came. And then in light of that, everything makes sense. Because He says in verse 25, whoever loves his life, whoever, excuse me, loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. See, in light of his death, Jesus is now explaining to us what it means to follow him. And this is, this is kind of uh, discipleship 101 for Jesus. If you read through the Gospels, this, uh, the, this type of teaching is filled throughout the Gospels. If you think about Matthew chapter 10, verses 38 through 39, it says, Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26, at a later time, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? And then in the Gospel of Luke, Luke says, if anyone, uh, Jesus says, uh, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And notice the emphasis here, take up his cross daily. It's the same implication and probably Jesus taught it in a multitude of different ways, but to, to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, isn't the one-time act of repentance and trusting in Christ, but it's the pattern 
of the Christian life in which we die to self and we follow Christ. And then in Luke, later on in chapter 9, verses 57 through chapter 10 too, uh, Jesus goes into great depth about the cost of following Jesus. He addresses a number of things that keep people back from following Jesus. Things like comfort. He says in verse 57, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. To another, He said, follow Me. But He said, Lord, let Me first go and bury My Father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, well, I, I will follow you, Lord, but, but let me first say farewell, farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't shy away from teaching the cost of following him. It meant to, to die to self and follow him. It doesn't mean that there's no pleasure in the things of this life like home and family and measures of comfort. It doesn't mean that there's, there's no enjoyment of the gifts that God gives us. Every gift that comes from above uh, that we can receive with thanksgiving and with prayer. But what it tells us is that nothing in this life matters as much or would we be willing to prize above Jesus. It says that there's something more that matters than this stuff that we can recognize and enjoy the good things that God gives us because we're not living for those things, but we're living for Him. And we're willing to give up everything in the cause and in the cost for the cost of following Him. And then to cap it all off, He looked at at His disciples and He appointed 72 of them. This is in Luke chapter 10. Here He's just talked about the call, what it means to follow Him, and now He's about to talk about the mission He sends them out two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said this, the harvest is plentiful. People are seeking. People are curious. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And oh, how the things that we pray for, how often they are that God calls us up into the work of the things that we pray for. He was telling his disciples, pray that God would send out laborers. And in verse 3, you know what he did? He said, and you're the laborers. I'm sending you out to bear witness to my name. This is the cost of following Jesus. Jesus is saying to follow me is to go the way of the cross. It's to suffer for my sake. If it's called for. to go the way of the cross and the promise if you look at what he says in verse 26 if we follow him on the way of the cross it's through the the way of the cross if you will that we get the glory but along the way did you notice what jesus said along the way of following jesus you have the assurance of his presence wherever i am you will be there also And we also have the promise of the Father's honor. That in the end, we'll hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Jesus is saying to follow me is to join me in this mission. And in joining me in the mission, it's costly. It's the call not just to some of us. It's the call to all of us. The call to every 
Christian, the call to everyone who says yes to Jesus is to join Him in some way, in some shape, in some form in the call of Jesus. If the, the mission of God were an interstate, we might all be in different lanes. We might be going different paces. Some of us are going 60 in the left lane and our friends might be passing us in the right lane. We should have been over there, but we got in the wrong lane. We may be in different cars. Our cars may break down along the way and somebody may need to come and help us out. But we're all going on the way of the cross in the mission of God to glory, following our Savior. Some of that was maybe close and real. Uh, <clears throat> but we're following Him in His mission. It's a call to see all of our life as paling, all the things of our life as paling in comparison to the joy and the privilege of following Jesus. To get to the point that we can share with the Apostle Paul to say to live as Christ, to die as gain, everything else I count as loss. Jesus is inviting us to follow Him, a recognition that there's something more important than the motions of life, getting a promotion, a bigger house, making more money, having more friends, the, the career we've always dreamed of, the stuff that we always wanted. Jesus invites us to Himself. And that's enough. Everything else is an extra blessing. We may suffer as we follow Him, Jesus says. We may bear the reproach of His name as we follow Him. We may feel ashamed in this world because we identify with Him. But one day, He says, not only are you assured of God's promise along the way, but we'll receive the honor from the Father in the end. You can't help but look at Jesus' words as He shares them here and ask yourself, have you counted the cost? It's just a good heart check for all of us. Are we holding anything back in our pursuit of Christ? Jesus in, invites us to consider the cost and to follow Him. Now, when we talk about the cost of following Jesus, I always feel like it's kind of a funny thing to begin with. You know, like when you're talking to a friend about Jesus, you don't want to be like, yeah, I'm following Jesus. Your life may be terrible. Like it feels like a bad place to start, right? You're like, well, you know, like it, maybe you're, as you think about in your own life, you think about following Jesus, you're like, wow, you know, like, that's great. Like, I'm interested in Jesus. That's a pretty steep price. You know, that doesn't seem like maybe the tactic of talking about the cost of following Jesus. I'm all into spirituality and religion, some might say, but like this is taking it a step too far. And I think every believer sometimes can feel discouraged by the, the cost of following Jesus, the, the weight that we bear in our pursuit of Christ or our desire to make Him known, the, the struggle that we have of, wrestling with the fear of man when we're trying to talk to somebody about Jesus. It would just be easier not to be worried about talking to people about Jesus than having to deal with the fear and the sweaty palms and the stumbling of our words as we try to do it. Sometimes it just seems like it's not worth it. It's a, a hindrance, a, a burden too great to bear. But Jesus starts here, but then I think He's going to go on and He's going to tell us that Christianity offers something that no other religion can offer. Christianity has a power that's found in the very thing that our world finds offensive. And that thing is the cross. First, we see the cost of following Jesus. And secondly, in verses 27 through 36, we see the cross of Jesus. Jesus, as he says all of this, it says, My soul is troubled. 
Sometimes we can relate. Jesus isn't just troubled by the physical realities around him. He's troubled by the weight of bearing the judgment of God. And we'll see that because he says, Father, save me from, here it is, this hour. The hour of Jesus' death and resurrection is at hand. But before resurrection comes the cross and Jesus knows it. And he says, Lord, save me from this hour. But this is the, if you will, John's Garden of Gethsemane moment. Father, not my will, but your will be done. He says, but for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And he goes on and, and, and there's this voice that speaks from the heavens uh, and, uh, and affirms him that I have glorified your name and I will glorify it again. And the crowd hears it and they, they can't make it out. They think an angel has spoken and Jesus says, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out when I'm lifted up. From the earth, I will draw all people to myself. That language of lifted up is a, a frequent uh, phrase that Jesus uses uh, throughout the Gospels. And particularly, we see it here in the Gospel of John. We'll look at it in John chapter 3 in a few weeks, but it comes from two different places in the Old Testament. There's a reference in the passage about the suffering servant, which is a, a passage that really speaks to the coming of Christ about 800 years before his life in Isaiah 52, 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. And what's interesting about Isaiah 52, speaking of him being lifted up and exalted, is that he's lifted up and exalted at the beginning of the passage of the suffering servant, and then he's crushed by the Father for the sins and the iniquities of his people. In Isaiah 53.10, we see exaltation and we see sacrifice, substitution in our place. But then, there's also a reference to Numbers 21, 4 through 9. It speaks of Israel's impatience with God as they were in the wilderness and how God uh, brings them discipline to Israel by uh, this, the ways of God are not the ways of man. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts here. He brings snakes into the camp um, and these snakes begin to bite people and kill them because of the hard hearts and the impatient and grumbling hearts of the people of Israel. If you doubt God's mercy to you, just be thankful in your impatience and in your grumbling uh, that there aren't snakes uh, at your heels. But God provided a way of escape for those who had eyes to see and hearts to believe. He told Moses to put a bronze snake on a pole and lift it up. And when anyone looked to the pole, to that bronze serpent, and when they were bit, it says anyone who looked at that bronze serpent would live. Serpents lifted up, and anyone who would look to what was lifted up would live. Jesus references reference this same passage in John 3 to speak of how he would die. It was a reference of him being lifted up, the way in which he would die, but also through his death, how he would be glorified. It speaks both of his death, the way and manner of his death, as well as his glory, glory through the cross. Jesus here is telling us he's come to die and he's come to die by laying down his life for us. And here's, here's why this is important. The cost of following Jesus. The cost of following Jesus only makes sense when you understand, when I understand that Jesus paid the infinite cost of satisfying the judgment of God for our sin. It only makes sense 
when we understand what Jesus accomplished on the cross was a sacrifice. He said, I've come to lay down my life, not as an example to inspire us, but as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. And he says this because we know this because he's saying through the cross, the judgment of the world, verses 31, is going to take place. And Satan himself, the ruler of this world, is going to be cast out. You know, from our perspective, from man's perspective, Pilate's perspective, the religious leader's perspective, what took place on Good Friday was actually the exact opposite in their minds of what Jesus says here. On their minds, it looked like on Good Friday that Jesus was judged, that Satan had won. But in God's plan, it was the opposite. The world was judged and Satan was defeated. The cross, if you will, was the death blow to sin and to Satan. And then when Jesus returns, He'll finish off Satan and bring about the final judgment, but it was in the cross that the decisive blow was given. The disciples were tempted to flee when Jesus was lifted up. It says that when the shepherd was struck, the sheep scattered. But Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, not that people will scatter, but that I will draw all to Myself. This is, this is why it, it, it's so important for us to understand the cost of following Jesus and the cross of Jesus because as uh, one uh, old commentator, Andrew McLaren, said, the cross is the magnet of Christianity. It's the magnet of Christianity because it's through Jesus being lifted up that He draws people to Himself. I, I like to think that this truly is the beauty of what Christianity offers. Jesus can beckon us to die to ourselves because He died for us. He can beckon us to die to ourselves because He died for us. It's the best news in the world. No religion can even come close to offering this, that God Himself didn't sit on high in judgment but came down low to offer Himself as a sacrifice for our sins, to save us and to forgive us. Secularism can't snuff it out. It's been trying for years. There's no sin, there's no sorrow, there's no suffering that stands a chance against overcoming the comforting, the saving, the transforming power of the cross. This is the heart of Christianity. This is the heart of the Gospel. It's what draws the lost to Christ. It's what draws near those who are suffering to the comfort of Christ. It's what draws the broken to Christ in which He says, come to Me as you are and I'll transform you into who I want you to be. This is the cross. It's what we believe. It's the truth in which we live and it's the truth that we declare. And Jesus says, you can't understand the cost of following Me unless you understand what I did on the cross for you. And it's in light of this that Jesus comes to the final point. And I think it's, it's both a a challenge and in some ways it meets us as a discouragement because after Jesus unpacks the cost and the and the cross of Jesus we see the challenge of unbelief the challenge of unbelief starting in verse 34 it says after hearing all of this in verse 34 the crowd answered him and they said well What we've heard from the law is that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus answering 
He says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. After hearing all of it, the people are, are still wrestling with understanding who Jesus is. He's the Son of Man. What do you mean He's going to be lifted up? I thought when the Messiah came, He was going to rule forever. At this time in, in Israel's history, before the coming of Jesus, if you study the rabbinic teachings, you'll, you'll see pretty clearly that the Jews expected a Messiah to come who would conquer and who would rule and who would establish a forever kingdom. So what's all this talk about dying? What's all this talk about defeat? They didn't understand. And I think it's helpful to us as we think about the challenge of belief. Some people don't believe because of a lack of understanding. I've wrestled with this question. I don't know if you've ever wrestled with this question. Why is it so hard for people to believe? We have the best news in the world. And yet you can share it with 10 people and 10 people might reject it. I heard this news for years before I trusted in Christ. I imagine the testimony is true for all of us, even if we accepted Christ as a kid. Some of us, we, we heard it for a long time before God gripped our hearts and we believed. Why do people not believe when the news is so good? And it's been this way forever. And it's not just because there aren't signs of things happening. You remember what I said, chapters 1 through 11 are all about the signs of Jesus. And there are many people in Jerusalem at this time who have heard or perhaps even have seen Lazarus walking around Bethany with Mary and Martha, and they, they know Jesus rose him from the dead. And they're like, I thought the Son of Man would be different. I didn't think Jesus was like this. I didn't think the Messiah was like this. And for, for many, there's a lack of understanding. They, they've heard and seen what Jesus has done, and they're still asking these questions having a hard time wrapping their minds around. I don't think anything's different today than it was then. I've, I've heard these categories put this way. We actually have this on our website. Um, we got this from Tim Keller. He talks about the, the different categories for, for questions that people have about Christianity, why they don't believe. When I, when I talk to somebody about Jesus, I'll often ask this question, what keeps you back from following Jesus? What holds you back from giving your life to Him? And Keller throws out these three categories. He says it's often content issues, coherence issues, or cost issues. Content issues related to the basics of Christianity, of are we sinful? Do we, do we need really Jesus to come and be a sacrifice for us this week? As we did our surveys, I talked to a, um, <clears throat> to a woman who uh, was walking her child on campus, and uh, she really believed that uh, Christianity is all about the the, in, the inspiration of Jesus as he loved people, that that's the core of what Christianity is about. And Jesus no doubt showed us what it means to love one another, but that inspiration means nothing if we read the Gospels apart from his sacrifice for our sin. He came not to inspire us, but to be a sacrifice for us. So there's questions about this. How do we understand what Jesus came to do? His sacrifice. What is faith? What does it mean to believe? What if I still have some doubts? Can I believe and still have doubts? These are content issues, coherence issues. Some people might say, how do I make sense of all the war and stuff in the Old Testament and all the stuff about Jesus in the New Testament? How does it fit together? Those are coherent issues and resolving those questions in our mind. And then many have questions about the cost of what it means to follow Christ and the, the fears uh, that come with that. 
Those are real questions, and we should be people who are open to meeting people where they're out and the questions that they have. Jesus doesn't chastise this crowd for the questions that they ask. He often chastises the religious leaders who should have known what the Scriptures taught. But when the crowd came asking, He never chastised them. He met them where they were at and answered their questions or used those occasions to teach something about Him. We want to be a place that doesn't shut down conversation but opens it up. And the main way we open it up is not by just saying, well, whatever is your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. No, we, we believe that God has truth and it's in His Word and we want to invite people into the, reading the Bible. Read the Bible with us. Talk, look at what the Bible says about Jesus. God's spoken for Himself. It's worth our time and energy to look at it. So people have questions, a lack of understanding, or uh, various questions that they ask. But we also see in verses 36 through 40 that people have hard hearts. For the sake of time, I won't read all of this, but we see two references from uh, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. One's Isaiah 6 1, one's Isaiah, uh, excuse me, one's Isaiah um, <clears throat> 50, uh, 53, I believe, and then the other is Isaiah 6 and the, the scene in which Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord. And it speaks of the hard hearts of the people and how they didn't believe, and particularly how God has hardened people's hearts. We, we see. Uh, it shouldn't be any surprise to us as we just finished up our series in the Minor Prophets that people reject the messenger that God sends. And Jesus isn't just a messenger. He's more than a prophet. He's the message itself. And He's coming to bear that news and people still reject Him. And in God's sovereign plan, the hardening of Israel's heart that we see that He did in the Old Testament and, and uh, what's unfolding here at the time of Jesus doesn't negate man's responsibility. This is the, the mystery uh, of God's sovereignty and human responsibility unfolding in the Scriptures. He sees that we see how God's blinded eyes and hardened hearts, and yet uh, Israel is, is culpable and responsible for their rejection and for their unbelief. You see this uh, all, all taking place within the time of Jesus, with Jesus and Israel at this time. And like we said earlier of the call of Abraham, he called Abraham, he calls Israel in order that they might be a blessing to all nations. But in being a blessing to all nations, God does not intend to cut Israel off. He intends to welcome all of Israel and all of the nations in the same way by faith in Jesus, the Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. You see how John unpacks all of this. <clears throat> But I, I think the point for us today is if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, we shouldn't harden our hearts. Don't harden your hearts, the author of Hebrews pleads with us. When you see who the Lord is and you see what Jesus has done, don't harden your heart to it. If He's calling you, respond. If He's drawing you, come. And we come by confessing our need for Him. God, I'm a sinner. And confessing our trust in what He's done for us. That He died for us and He rose from the dead. And we say, God, You have my life. That's the call of Christ. To any and all who have eyes to see and ears to hear, look to Jesus and trust Him. If you look to Him, you'll live. Have you looked to Him? Have you trusted Him? Do you know others who have yet to look to Him? Who have yet to trust Him? 
And then finally, we see the fear of man. It says that there are many, it's kind of this encouragement. There were many, it says in verse uh, 42, of the authorities who believed in him. We see the example of Nicodemus in chapter 3 and how Nicodemus apparently ultimately comes to believe in him. And there are others. We even see uh, other leaders, perhaps through all of this, who believe. But it says, and this is an asterisk by their belief that I think is a challenge for all of us still today. It says, though, it says they believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it so that they would not be put out in the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. John Calvin calls the, the glory of man the golden shackles of earthly honors. That seeking the praise of others that we think is going to give us the approval that we want ends up enslaving us to others. And faith in Christ can't be controlled by fear of man. I've been thinking about this, and I, I, wanna, I, want you, I want to be clear on this. I think sometimes we think, well, if I'm going to be a Christian, I've got to be the boldest evangelist that there ever was. I think here's what God would say to us. You don't have to be bold as a lion to be a Christian. But all of us have to be willing to be identified as His sheep. Now, you may not be as bold as the boldest evangelist there ever was, but everyone who calls on Christ has to be willing to be identified as a part of His fold, as one of His sheep. We all have to say, I'm the one that He came searching for. I'm the one that heaven rejoiced in when I was found. It's been said that the mushy middle of Christianity is being weeded out today. There's not as much cultural benefit to identifying as Christian. <clears throat> that seems to be true, and I would attest that as well. <clears throat> And in many ways, I believe that's a good thing. Because ultimately, in the eyes of Christ, there's not a mushy middle. Confessing Christ, coming to faith in Christ, I'm not saying it all happens in a moment. You may believe and may be wrestling to understand how to believe. I remember as a college student spending some time in the Middle East sharing the gospel and knowing of other believers who had come to faith in Christ. And literally, to profess faith in Christ meant, uh, at best, being broken away from their family. At worst, it meant losing their life. It can be difficult to identify with Christ and to say to a, a young believer who's identified with Christ, when your family puts you out, I'll be there with you. If your life is taken, the cost is worth it. It seems radical, but it's the ordinary cost of following Jesus. And he's inviting us to this and He's inviting us to identify with Him. We can't hold back because of the fear of man, and yet how often we allow others to dictate our willingness to stand for Christ, to speak for Christ. Matthew, <clears throat> the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, and chapter 10, verses 26 through 33, he speaks to this direct issue. Just mark those verses down, verses 26 through 33 of Matthew chapter 10. And, and in, in part, Jesus will ultimately tell his disciples, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. And that sounds harsh, right? God says, fear me. They may take your life, but they can't do anything to your eternal destiny. Only I can do that. But do you know the same God who tells you to fear him? Do you know what else he says? 
He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. He cares for us. He has loved us with a love that we do not deserve. That we could not earn, but that He freely gives us. And in the final words of His public ministry, in verse 44, He shouts out, He cries out, Whoever believes in Me, believes not in Me, but in Him who sent Me. And whoever sees Me, sees Him who sent Me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in Me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears My words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. What is that judge? The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus said, I have come to save sinners who will believe on me. Oh, judgment. Judgment would have been easy for God to do. All he had to do was sit on his throne in heaven and judge. And one day Jesus will return as judge. But do you know what we'll be judged on? We'll be judged on whether or not we accepted the words that He spoke. And the words that He spoke were look to Me and live. Die to self and follow Me. Come to Me. Come from darkness into life. Jesus came to die on the cross so that He might save every sinner who believes in Him. And as we think about this, all these conversations with Jesus, let's begin with casting it in this light that the call to follow Him is costly. The cross was for you and me. The challenge of unbelief in that day is the same today. But He beckons us to come. Beckons us to believe, to trust Him. And He shows us that He's worthy of our lives. That He's worthy of us taking up the cost of following Him Because He's laid down His life for us. He's laid down His life for us and for our sin. And when we come to know Him, we'll bear fruit for all eternity, He says. I really believe as we look at these conversations with Jesus throughout the Gospel of John that they can change us. They can change our lives. But we'll also see that a conversation with someone else about Jesus can also change their life for all eternity. In the Gospel of John, as we look at his conversations with various people, we come to know more about who Jesus is as well as how to know how to make him known.